0: your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 20. 2 Samuel chapter 20, page 293 of your pew Bibles. 2 Samuel 20. Um, we are uh, still working our way through the biography of David. We are nearing the end of 2 Samuel. So if, if you're ready for, for a different type of scenery, we, we are getting there. Uh, but we are still looking at... Uh, uh, the story of David and really a, a dark period of David's life. We are, we find ourselves right in the middle of it. So if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's word, to Samuel 20. The writer writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, starting verse 1. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the sons of Jesse, every man to his tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines, whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard, and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. The king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that had been appointed him. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do more, us more harm than Absalom. Take your lord's servants, pursue him, lest he get himself to fortify cities and escape from us. And there went out after him Joab's men and the Carathites and the Pelethites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and a sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. And Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bikri, And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway. And anyone who came by seeing him stopped. And When the man saw that all the people stopped, he carried Amasa out of the highway unto the field and threw a garment over him. When he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bikri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth-Machah, and all the Bichrites assembled and followed him, followed him in. And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of beth Maacah. They cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here, that I may speak to you. He came near, and the woman said, Are you Joab? He answered, I am. Then she said to him, Listen to the words of the servant. He answered, I am listening. Then she said, They used to say in former times, Let them but ask counsel at Abel, and they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord?" Joab answered, Far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give up him alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. Now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. Benaiah, the son of Jehoiadai, was in command of the Carthites and Pelethites. Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. Jehoshaphat, son of Ahilab, was the recorder. Shiva was secretary. Zadok and Abiathar were priests. Ira, the Jerite, also, was also David's priest. Go, Lord, in prayer. Our Father, we, we read here a, a text that is really difficult to, to get through. So much violence and blood and war and, and just just the, 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 the evils of humanity are made just so evident here. Lord, may we see as... We ask every day that as you open our entire being that we may become more like Christ, that we see not the kingdom of men, but ultimately the hope of the kingdom of God. For the answer to this world that we're reading here is Christ and his kingdom. Would you be so kind to help us this morning to see your glory and your kingdom above all things. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son we pray. Amen. May be seated. Many of you all should know by now that one of my favorite uh, authors, particularly, certainly of the 20th century, is Tolkien, and uh, especially his work, uh, The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy. In The Hobbit, which is written more towards uh, children, uh, although I wouldn't say little children, uh, but, but in The Hobbit, the, 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 the dwarves and Bilbo, the, the hobbit of, of The Hobbit, uh, find themselves in the goblins' uh, mountain, right? In the goblins' cave. And they finally escape. Uh, barely, they barely escape. And they're, they're out running. And in the distance, they hear wolves are coming after them. And so, so what, what, what the, what the uh, Bilbo and Gandalf and the dwarves say is, is, is we are going from goblins... The wolves, or, Tolkien tells us, as the saying has come down to us, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Love that line. Out of the frying pan, into the fire. That is to say, we thought we escaped one bad event, only to trade it in for something far worse. What it is we have here, if you've been tr- tracking along with us over these last few weeks, is we, we thought last week... Absalom is dead. The civil war is over with. David has done all that he can to bring peace back into the kingdom. But what we actually find in this chapter is we've gone from the frying pan to the fire. We don't just have one who's trying to usurp the throne. Now what we have is one who's trying to secede from the union. Let's start there, if you will, with the rebel here in verses 1 to 13. Now, even though David has defeated one rebel, he now must address Uh, A different one. Uh, And and the genesis of this rebellion from Sheba actually goes back to the end of chapter 19, which we didn't really spend a lot of time on. You can look at it there in verses 41 to 43, the very end of chapter 19. Basically what it is is that David works to bring peace with Judah, which is the tribe he's from. And in Israel, what you have already present is a division within Israel, a north and a south, right? The north are ten tribes and the south are two tribes. And David is from the southern tribe. His predecessor was from the northern tribes. And that is why when you saw that Absalom took over and David was fleeing Jerusalem, you would find people heaping insults upon him. And they were saying, "'You you, you usurp the rightful king, Saul, from his family.'" You are a rebel yourself, and you're getting what's coming to you. What you're seeing there is that conflict between north and south. That conflict is present in the time of Saul. It certainly shows up with David. For example, if you need more evidence, when David took the crown, he was first crowned king in Judah, not in all of Israel. He first became the king of the south before he became the king of united Israel. While David was crowned king in Judah, Saul's son Ishbosheth was crowned king of the northern tribes. This conflict has has been around for a long, long time. It will ultimately uh, result in a national divorce. When you have Rehoboam, the son of Solomon in the south, Jehorabim, someone else's son in the north, right? And so this conflict becomes a permanent division later on. It's evident here. And so after all the violence, all the conflict, the north has had enough. So a son from the tribe of Benjamin, who is also the same tribe as Saul, he decides we are going to secede from the union. So he gets his his band of merry men, and they revolt. And all that is demonstrated at the end of chapter 19, where the northern tribes felt like David was favoring the southern tribes yet again. Now, Jesus makes it very clear in Matthew chapter 12, that no kingdom divided can stand. And what we're seeing is the beginning of this. Now, David will, will put the pieces back together, yes. Solomon will rule with wisdom and grace, and that will really put the pieces back together. But that underlying division stays dormant until his death in Rehoboam takes over. Clearly, a kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. I wish I could think of a good application for us as Americans. Don't you? Man, I have just wrestled with this wrestled with it. But the northern tribes, they, they turned to Sheba as their leader. Remember that Absalom wanted to rule. Sheba here wants to secede. So David does really what Absalom should have done. Remember, Absalom waited because he wanted to, to get this whole big old army to take down David. David's wiser than that. David knows he must address the problem immediately and swiftly. So the first thing he does, is he calls his, his newly minted general, Masa who, remember, had, was on Absalom's side, right? That, that, that was some real problems. Here, he says, all right, Masa, your first job is go deal with this problem and do it quickly, right? You do not want him to, to give speech and it be go live on the YouTube and people start joining his club. Okay, you, we don't want that. Deal with it quickly. The problem is a is not much of a morning person and he shows up too late, So what does David do? He turns to his second option. You see this in verses 5 and 6. He turns to Abishai, who is the brother of Joab. And remember, Joab was kicked out. Joab lost his job. He was demoted. He's no longer the the, the main general of Israel. Amasa is. So he sends Abishai. And lo and behold, Abishai takes Joab's men, who are loyal to Joab. And some way, somehow, in this text, Joab becomes the leader of his own men. Who could have thunk that, right? And it is at this point, after verse 7, the narrative zeroes in on Joab's actions. What's the first thing Joab does? He's got his, 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 his men, right? And along the way, they cross paths with Amasa. Amasa is so late. You've met these people. Maybe you are buried into that family. He's so late that when Joab and Abishai are on their way to deal with the, the, the succession, Amasa finally got dressed and he's, he's going to go to David to get his orders. The orders have passed, right? It is done with. And, and so here, what you get in verses 8 to 10, I don't want to rehash it, is Joab murders Amasa. Now, this is not the first person Joab is murdered. We can look at Abner, we can look at others, and you can go back for those texts. We've looked at those. Now, it is a gruesome murder, and it is given in gruesome texts. I, I told some of our young men in, in, over the last week, you're going to like Sunday morning sermon because it's bloody. It is gruesome. And this is the sort of stuff that got me into the Bible as a middle school creepy young man, right? right? This is the stuff that got me into the Bible. It wasn't the whole God loves you, has a wonderful plan for your life. No, no, it was the gross stuff. Like any other middle school boy that certainly described me back in the good old days. But nevertheless, we have this gruesome murder. He isn't buried, but rather his, his, his carcass is dragged on the side of the road while he is still wallowing in his own blood and, and other stuff. Now the text never gives us the true motive Uh, for Joab's actions. We assume it had something to do with uh, Amasa uh, siding with Absalom in the civil war or perhaps even more likely, it has to do with Amasa took his job. And and so he's going to prove himself to David by getting Sheba, dealing with that rebellion. And if he gets rid of Amasa, Amasa can't have his job anymore. But the text is never clear on the motive. Let's look secondly at the resolution, verses 14 to 25. Sheba flees to the city of Abel of Beth-Machah. Beth means house of. So Abel of beth of Makah. Now, this is likely a city of refuge. Here's Sheba and his uh, men, uh, his rebels are fugitives, right? And this was the way it worked back then is, is if, if, if a crime was committed here and you were accused of it, and instead of uh, because of tribal and, and families and whatnot, uh, you couldn't get a fair fair trade, right? So so you would flee to a city of refuge where a fair trial can be given to you, right? We do something like that here, right? If there is a high crime, right? And and, and if, if the defendant says, I don't think I can get a fair trial in this city, the city will then try to have a trial in, in a, a nearby city where a fair trial can, can be given, right? You've, you've seen that, uh, no doubt, before. So Sheba has probably fled as... Uh, in the city of refuge, maybe he's trying to recruit the people of Abel of Beth I, I, I don't know. So, what does Joab do? He 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 knows where Sheba is. He says, "I've got a plan. I will tear down these walls." Now, does he mean it? Ask Amasa, ask Abner, if Joab is willing to do anything in loyalty to David. So he he starts to try to tear down the walls. And he is making a lot of noise. He is besieging this otherwise peaceful city. And then we meet an unnamed wise woman. She's introduced in verse 16. Now remember, verse 1 told us of a worthless man. The word there for worthless really means wicked. A wicked man, a worthless man. And so, so we are to contrast here, right? In the same city, a worthless man, Sheba, who's seceding from the union, and a wise woman. Clearly contrast, not just in gender, but in their, their makeup. One is a fool, one is wise. But not only that, I think we're supposed to contrast this wise woman with Joab. Joab is a fool, isn't he? He's murdering everyone left and right. And he will bulldoze you over at whatever cost to get what it is he wants. He wants to be David's right-hand man. He's loyal to David at a fault here. And so he will murder, he will steal, he will kill to get that position. And when he loses it, he wants it back. But their commands are pretty clear. She wants peace. This is a city of peace. We've been known as the city of peace. We don't want to engage in this sort of stuff. Joab just wants Sheba. So this wise woman comes up with a solution. We'll get you Sheba. And so what happens? She manages to get the city to round up Sheba, behead him, and toss his head over the wall. May the Lord's blessing be upon you. Let us pray and be dismissed, right? You know, I'm like, I don't know. I don't know, honey. I didn't come to church for this sort of stuff, right? Every word of scripture is inspired by God and given for our good instruction. And that's the end of the main action of the story. And there's a number of ways to prove that. For one, notice I showed you the, 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 the chiasm. So you start with a worthless man, you end with a wise woman. Also notice that verse 1, there's a trumpet that is blown. At the end of the story, Joab blows a trumpet. So clearly we are to see chapter 20 as a singular unit. You need to also know that, that, that the way the story of David is told is it starts with his triumphs. And then it ends with his tragedies. And so what you have, if you go back to, I believe it is the end of chapter 8, it concludes with a very similar list with some of the same names as chapter 20 ends, another chiasm. So it's a way to say what you have here is the the, the tragedies of David. So this brings an end to that storyline. Aren't you glad it's finally over with? Finally, all the murder and the mayhem and the gruesome stuff, for the most part, is over with. But, but what do we do with this text? i I got to be honest with you. I, I started this text, and, and I read it, and I studied it, and I, I laid it all out, the, the exegeted and everything. And then I thought, I have no idea what the point of this passage is. Have you ever read the Bible like that? I have a, I have a, a cemetery degree, three seminary degrees, right? And I read the Bible. I think, I, I, what does this have to do with a single mom, right? I mean, that's, that's sort of usually the question I ask myself. Can I give you two things to look at here that I think the text wants us to see? The first thing is this. We are to see the consequences of sin. The consequences of sin. I think what, the reason I've struggled with this text so much is because I'm a bit exhausted from it. There's a point where I thought, you know, we need to take about six weeks off and just shower the entire time because this is getting ridiculous. How much more violence can we really handle? How much more rebellion... How, how, how many more times can David fail us? The story has just become repetitive and it's an ugly story. Think of it, whenever we started the story of David, I bet you thought, yeah, this is gonna be good. Goliath's gonna get what's coming to him. I love that in Sunday school. He's gonna be crowned king, right? Ladies are like, I heard he's handsome, right? We got really excited about some of this stuff. But man, we have spent this entire time this year looking at it and none of it's good news. It's all just terrible news. Over and over again, we're reading about another battle, more betrayal, more uncertainty, more war, more violence. And I think that's the point. David was supposed to be and is considered the greatest king in all of Israel's history. This guy. And if you were to take just this section from chapter 8 to chapter 20, and then I were to say to you, this is the best Israel ever uh, presented, you believe I was lying. We're supposed to have this longing that if this is the best, what does that say about Israel? What does that say about us as humans? If this is as good as it can get. We are supposed to leave this narrative longing for a true and better king whose throne is an eternal throne and no one can usurp it and it cannot be threatened. We come to the end here, even these last few verses where it mentions uh, forced labor who's in charge of the slaves. And we are to read this and say, this is getting out of hand. We need a better David. We must long for a better David because what we are seeing here is not the triumph of grace. We are seeing the tragedy of sin. And what sin has left in its wake is one victim after another. It is a lie that when we say, I can live my life as I want, I can do what I want, even if it is wrong, and no one will be bothered by it. Look at this chapter alone. Notice the victims of sin here. First of all, we're going to look at these backwards. The city of Abel of Beth-Machah. Imagine, if you will, you're minding your own business in this city that none of us can properly pronounce, and all of a sudden, you're being besieged. And so you send a wise woman out there like, hey, 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 ho, 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 pause, pause, time out, right? Time out. My dad always, hey, time out, right? That was his thing. Time out, okay? What's going on here? Did anyone ever bother to ask that question? Joab, Joab, where are you at, right? And Joab's like, I want to kill a dude. Okay, before we do that, can we have a conversation, right? What you have is an entire uh, city at risk because of the ambition and the ruthlessness of a single man. And they become victims of his ruthlessness. And here they are suddenly stuck between two warring factions. I bet you and your family have experienced that. All you want is to love everybody, but this side is mad at that side, and you feel pulled between them. You just say, how about we just try to, try to get along as a family? You just feel that tension. The city of Abel, of Beth or, or weren't bothering anybody. All of a sudden, they're in the middle of it. Or consider Amasa, the general of Israel's army. Now he is by no means righteous, but his murder is still an act of injustice. He stood in the way of Joab's ambition. Notice what happens. He is betrayed and he is stabbed and he suffers and his own men following him drag him to the side and follow his murderer. Whatever you may say about Amasa, He doesn't deserve this. This is an act of injustice. He's a victim of Joab's ambition. Can I show you one more victim of the consequences of sins? You go all the way back up to verse 3, we meet these concubines, and and they just sort of pop there. They, They serve no purpose in the narrative, they're just there. It's like the like the writer says, oh yeah, you guys remember these women who are the victim, not only of David, the fact that David has concubines is a problem, they're victims of Absalom's of drive to prove that he was better than his father, who, 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 who went into them publicly and brought shame upon his father. Now that David has returned, David looks at them and thinks they're spoiled, thinks I, I can never have them again. So he sends them off into a nunnery and will have nothing to do with them. And they will spend the rest of their life under guard where they... They will die alone, victims of sin. So, whenever we read this text, we think this is just awful. You're, I think you're reading it right. Doesn't it make you want to long for a better king than David? Doesn't it make you want to long for a better kingdom than Israel? Maybe right now, every time you turn on your news. You, you feel your uh, depression coming back, frustration coming back. And, and maybe instead of being angry, you should long for something better. And that leads secondly. That longing creates the second thing because that longing is present within this text. And that is the crushing of the serpent's head. Now, I need you to stick with me. OK, so. Get your nap over with. I need you to get with me. Some of y'all go ahead and get your sugar. Stick with me, okay? Got your caffeine? Got your coffee? Good. Stick with me. I'm going to blow your mind, but you got to stick with me, okay? What we have here is the biblical writer is, is, is pointing us to the Messiah. Much like every passage of Scripture has Jesus at its center. Was it Luther said, I've told you a thousand times before, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. And we are failing to adequately read the Bible unless we are amazed at the beauty of Christ and his triumph over sin. And even in this ugly text that we are longing for a true and better David, a son of David, if you will, we see Christ here. But in order to see it here, we have to go back to the beginning. Genesis 3.15 is the first messianic prophecy in the Bible. And you'll notice there, it puts warfare, hostility, enmity, dependent on your translation, between the woman and the serpents. And so what we are to do immediately is we are to look for this warfare. This is how you read, right? The, the, the thesis is laid there. This is gonna be the ark of the Bible. And we've been reading through the Bible this year. Hopefully you've seen this. And so what we are looking for, at least in this context, are strong women who wage war against the serpents. And so the way she will wage war against the serpent is she will use her femininity to deceive and to destroy. She will use her femininity to deceive and destroy. What you're not going to see is a woman armed with an AR-15 and, 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 a, and a Rambo bandana around her head saying, shh, shh, let's go, right? I know it's a shotgun AR-15. I'm, I'm, I'm Work with me here, people. Rather, what we are looking for are wives, (coughs) mothers, women. Can I give you a few examples of this? Just a few examples. In Judges chapter four, we meet a woman by the name of Yael. Uh, And that's assuming you don't pronounce the J. If you do pronounce the J because it's Hebrew, they don't have Js, it would be Jael. But I believe her name is pronounced Yael. She is the wife of Heber. Notice she is introduced as a wife. And this is the middle of, 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 of Deborah and Barak's war uh, against the enemy. And the enemy sneaks into the tent of Yael, the wife of Heber. Now, what is a tent in warfare? It is home. What is the wife of Heber doing there? She, 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 is, she is domesticating in the middle of warfare so that when her husband comes back, he has a taste of home. And you remember what happens, the story, right? This is the story, by the way, that got me to the Bible as a gross middle schooler who who, who stunk like all other middle school boys, right? Right, that was me, okay? This is the story. This right here, Judges 4. Remember what she does? He sneaks in and she says, oh, oh, come come on in. I know you're awfully tired and you need to hide. You're safe in this tent. I tell you what, why don't you lay down to rest? Here's some milk. You're safe with me. He thinks, ah, this is a good, good woman here. He is in home, but he is deceived. As he falls asleep, what does she do? She takes a tent peg, a picture of domestic life, at least at warfare. She crushes his skull. You seen, you seen the story so far? You seen it? She uses her femininity to deceive and to destroy. Can I give you another story? The son of Gideon was a man by the name of Abimelech in Judges chapter nine, I believe it is, Judges nine. Oh, by the way, if you wanna see it in Judges four, there you go. In Judges nine, Abimelech is declaring himself king and, and, and he is a wicked king. And so there's this great battle going on in Judges nine and Abimelech gets a little too close to the wall he's trying to destroy. You remember what happens? An unnamed woman takes a millstone. Now what's a millstone? A millstone is a domestic tool used to crush grain. And somehow she lifts it over the wall and she throws it over and uses it to crush the skull of Abimelech. Now, remember what Abimelech does is he realizes, I can't survive this, I'm gonna die. He tells his armor bearer, kill me so that no one can say I died from the hands of a woman, bless his heart. Now, the irony there is, we all, all, only thing we remember about the story is he died at the hands of a woman, all right? By the way, can I just a little footnote here? This is free, okay? So you're gonna have to really listen to me, all right? a so footnote, this is exactly, essentially how Saul dies. Not with a millstone over the head, but he knows he's gonna die. And he asks his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer refuses. We are to see Abimelech, the evil king, with Saul in the narrative. That's free. You, you, you can do that on your own time. That's free. So Judges 9.53, through the millstone, crushed his skull. Can I give you another one? Esther, the queen of Persia. You remember the story, right? Haman. Haman wanted to destroy the Jews. And what does Esther do? She hosts a banquet. And what is a banquet? It's a meal. She prepares a meal for Haman and her husband, Haman is deceived, thinking he's about to be honored, when in reality he ends up getting hanged. It's the breaking of the neck, the crushing of a skull. And then we meet this woman in 2 Samuel 20. Contrast from the foolish man, the worthless man, the wicked man. Here comes the wise man, who she doesn't fight back. She doesn't aim arrows. She speaks. She convinces. She holds Joab back the way only a woman like her can. And what happens? The one that wages war against David, his head is crushed. It's vivid imagery in all of these stories, isn't it? It's hard to read in polite company like this, isn't it? But the Bible wants us to see precisely that. This warfare between the woman and the serpent is found throughout the Bible. However, you need to notice here, the woman is never triumphant. She gains a temporary victory. Yes, she does, but not a permanent one. Go, go back to, to that promise in, in Genesis 3, 315. The promise wasn't that the woman would crush the seed of the serpents. But rather, the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. You see the difference? It's a massive difference. We've been looking for strong women who are who are powerful in their femininity who wage war against the serpent but all along the way what we see is mankind keeps getting worse and things get more complicated and and and, and another woman rises and more men destroy and the serpent keeps biting and Israel remains bruised but what we're longing for isn't the woman to crush the serpent's head before her seed to crush the serpent's head and how will he do it he will use Deception by which it appears as if his heel has been bruised and he will be bruised. But that bruising is the source of the serpent's crushing. And so it is. A woman who produces seed, and, men, and women don't produce seed, men do. What I, what I believe is a veiled reference to the virgin birth. She conceives and gives birth and raises a son, Jesus Christ, the Son of David, who is bruised upon the cross. But when he is risen from the dead, he is triumphant forevermore over the serpent. Can I prove it to you biblically? Real briefly here. John 12, 31, Jesus states on the eve of his execution, now is the time of judgment on this world and the prince of this world will be driven out. You see see what he's doing? He's picking up on this imagery of the serpent being destroyed. So too, Paul, the writer of Hebrews, would say the same thing, that Christ offers us forgiveness by the canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, how? By nailing it to the cross. He disarmed, he disrobed, he, he, he made a mockery of the principalities and, and, and authorities. That, that, is, that is, the serpent himself and he put them to open shame. The imagery here is that when a Roman general goes in and he wins victory, he'll take the leader of the general, the king, whatever, of whoever he just defeated, and he will tie them up, and he'll have a great parade in Rome. And there the generals will be on their white stallions, the army behind, everyone's celebrating. And at the end, pulled by the little donkey, will be a disrobed and exposed general and king. And everyone will keep scorned, thinking, you thought you could defeat mighty Rome. Paul's picking up on that imagery and says, this is what Christ has done to the serpent, He's crushed him. He's destroyed him. And he dragged him through the kingdom of God and saying, he thought he was victorious. He thought he was the great deceiver. But through deception, I destroyed him. He is not a threat to you anymore. He put him to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Same thing in Hebrews 2. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now is I misquoted there. Forgive me in my notes wrong. But it says the same thing, that Christ is crushing the serpent's head. What is it that we are to see here is that this is not our hope. Christ is. Every time we see destruction and mayhem and violence and, and, and mobs and everything else, we are not to be partaken that. We are to hope in something far greater. Can I show you one other proof of Christ in this text? It left off the page for me. How does Joab kill Amasa? Yes, he's got the sword by his side. Yes, he picks it up. Yes, he pierces his side. All of that. But did you notice what he did first? He deceived him with a kiss. No wonder then when Christ comes, he is deceived with a kiss. And there are Judas and everyone he's in line with think they have gained the victory until Christ walked out of that grave. That is the point of the text. Not Joab. The world is full of Joabs. It's not Amasa. The world is full of Amases. It's not the wise woman. The world is full of wise women. It's not David. The world is full of Davids. It's Christ. That is the answer we're looking for. That's the longing of the hearts. Let's pray. Lord, I... I